Hello, and welcome to Just Hands. Uh, thank you guys so much for tuning in. As a reminder, we are brought to you by Solve for Why. I'm going to be in Vegas uh, beginning of December for the Solve for Why Elite Academy. It's the first time I'm going to have been able to attend. Uh, last year, uh, I had to cancel last minute, but I'm really looking forward to getting to experience the Elite Academy, seeing some of you guys there. Um, and if you're in Vegas around that time, or you're thinking about going to the Elite Academy, uh, shoot me a note. Uh, my, you can reach me at jack at justhandspoker.com. Uh, yeah, I'd love to either tell you more about the Academy or just meet up while we're in Vegas. I think that there's going to be a number of listeners out there and that we're going to do something at some point. A reminder, if you haven't signed up for Patreon, uh, I wanted to let you know that that's still an option and thank everyone who has already signed up. Um, the Patreon was initially conceived really just as a way to incentivize me to create more episodes. I shifted a lot of the people who were signing up or who had signed up for the Just Hands membership onto Patreon so that I only got paid by members when I actually created episodes. And uh, we've had a little bit more of a consistent stream of content so far, I think, as a result, which has been nice. It's nice to get more podcasts in your guys' ear. Uh, and so if you sign up for a Patreon uh, subscription at patreon.com slash justhands, you'll receive, depending on what level you sign up for, access to the premium podcasts, access to the Just Hands membership group, or at the highest level, you'll receive a monthly coaching session of 45 minutes with me or any of the other Just Hands coaches if you prefer. And we're also going to be introducing some exclusive content for Patreon members. Uh, I can't guarantee what the rate of that content will be. Uh, really, the subscription is about those existing perks and just helping to you know, get more content out there. But what we are going to be doing is some exclusive podcasts for subscribers, um, which will, I guess, just be premium podcasts, so continuing to produce those. And also um, some podcast breakdowns done by James for the subscribers only, uh, for the Patreon subscribers only. So if you want access to those, you know where to go, patreon.com slash justhands. Uh, we have a fantastic guest today, Brad Wilson, who's a former Run It Once coach. Brad Wilson also runs Enhance Your Edge, which is a training site, poker blog, um, and now the home of Brad's new podcast, Chasing Poker Greatness. Brad was kind enough to invite me on his show, uh, and I returned the favor, and we've got Brad for the day talking strategy with us here. I think it's going to be a fantastic episode. We're also going to be releasing on our feed the episode that I did on his show, and so you can either listen to that here, or I highly recommend going over to Chasing Poker Greatness on whatever podcast player you're using and going ahead and subscribing. Uh, he has a great episode with Matt Berkey and a bunch of really awesome episodes with people both playing poker and also chasing poker greatness in other ways, which I was pleasantly surprised to see. Uh, so check that out. Go subscribe to Chasing Poker Greatness, and I hope you enjoy both of these episodes. Thanks again for tuning in, and enjoy. Hello, James. Hello, Jackson. I just took a big sip of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's... It was a good decision because you're going to need some energy for this episode. We have 
a fantastic guest. Uh, we have Brad Wilson of Enhance Your Edge, uh, formerly of Run It Once. Brad, how are you doing? Doing pretty well, sir. Doing pretty well. How are you? I'm doing fantastically. Brad had the, uh, you know, the foresight and wisdom to ask me to come on his show, uh, which is coming out, or it's out now. We're not going to release this until it's out, but it's a brand new show. Uh, Brad, why don't you tell us a little bit just about what's going on at Enhance Your Edge? Lots of things are going on at Enhance Your Edge. So many things that it's hard for me to uh, get sleep at night. Um, <laughs> but the the, uh, the podcast is uh, it's called Chasing Poker Greatness, and it's about the journey. It's about the wisdom that you know amazing poker players have learned, their process for self improvement on a regular basis, the books they read, uh, philosophy on how they think about the game and how poker has improved their life and you know gives the audience actionable actionable tips actionable um you know a methodology for being the best poker player that they're capable of if you guys haven't gotten enough of uh my voice from this podcast then you can hear it over there eventually and i definitely recommend brad he's a very process-oriented guy in the best of ways. And so if you're looking for ways to improve both with how you're approaching poker and really everything else, I definitely would point you in that direction. I'm personally very excited for the show to come out and to be able to hear uh, the other guests that you have lined up, uh, whether they show up or not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, appreciate the kind words, man. Uh, yeah, means a and lot. We'll, we'll put a link to everything in the description. As um, always, yeah. yeah. Sweet. So you can check that out there. Hi, Brad. Well, you know, we don't really talk about a uh, life process here. We talk about poker process. And I hear you have a uh, a selection for dissection of the processes, processes of poker for us to discuss today. You... So you want me to give a hand, right? Is this my... Yes. That's, <laughs> this that's is the, that's the your, fundamental your... unit of poker. Uh, <laughs> a hand. Right. Um, so... Effectively, like, I don't play a ton of live poker. I, I play mostly online, and I have, I, I don't take, uh, one to one coaching students anymore, but I do have one, one guy that really, he's a friend of mine. He, he's a good friend. He's a good dude, and he's grandfathered in, and basically, as long as he wants to pay for coaching, I'll give him coaching and, until the end of time. And, uh, so he, he sends me hands, and he plays live at 2-5. Uh, up to 510. And so one hand that we covered last session was, um, so he's playing 5510 at, I believe, the Commerce in Los Angeles. I, I don't think that matters. <laughs> I don't think that gives any extra uh, info. But, um, well, only to the structure. Right. Uh. So it's 5510. I assume it's an, uh, straddle, um, an aggro recreational player who's you know borderline borderline volatile he limps for 10 uh, my student raises the 40 with kings from the small blind and the villain calls i don't have stack depth here it doesn't really come into play we'll assume 900 deep because i think that's the that game is a 500 cap is it 500 cap yeah the 5-5 five, five game so they're probably somewhere around 50 bigs to start the hand. Maybe more if that comes into play. Yeah, um, it, it doesn't say. 
but they probably got deep. Um, and that's probably why he didn't say. Yeah. But, uh, so there's 90 in the pot and flop is King Jack three with the King Jack of clubs. Should Tom. we talk about the pre-flop sizing? A yeah, little yeah. Bit? go ahead. Go I would, go I would typically go a little bit bigger here. Um, I mean, it depends on how deep you are, but especially when Call it a thousand deep. out of position. I mean, not that much bigger, but maybe like 50 or 60. I So I normally am a big advocate for sizing larger, generally, when our opponents have relatively inflexible and too wide column ranges. But I actually think that uh, straddles... I normally will size down relative to my other sizings when the straddle's on, and it's not just because the stack depth gets cut in half, but there's sort of a psychological number I'm going for, where I think that when you get into the $50 plus range preflop, you can trigger better behavior, for lack of a better term. And so normally if the game environment is such that I'm sizing like 5 or 6x preflop over a limp, when the straddle's on, I'm more likely to choose something like 3x to 4x. And I also think that keeping stack size or keeping SPR higher um, and also more like what we're accustomed to and what our strategy is built around, there's there's something to be said for that as well. But yeah, I don't, I, I don't think we... Yeah. Oh, go ahead. I guess I would say like a lot of the time these like limp ranges in these straddled pots end up being a little bit stronger than ordinary. So, I mean, I'm, I'm nitpicking here, I suppose, but I, I like making it 50 instead of 40. All right, so like an exploitative sizing with kings? No. Well, I like making it 50 with our raising range. Okay. And, okay, so I'll, I'll, I'll give my thoughts in here. If that's okay. Am I allowed? <laughs> you are more than allowed. You're encouraged. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think there's merit to either, either line pre, either sizing. And for me, it would be determined on game flow. Uh, depending on how the straddle game's playing, what the standard raises, what people are expecting or used to. If the expectation are larger raises and we can get away with it, then I would just go for it. And, you know, if the, the standard ISO is going to be 60 or whatever it is and it still gets action, then cool, uh, open to 60. If, um, like you, you mentioned, Jack, there's this psychological element when the straddle's on where... The stakes are kind of changing, right? And people that are used to playing 5-5, five, five, and if the op standard opens 20, when you open to 60, it seems way bigger simply because they're not used to that stake. So like you said, they can play better. They can start folding um, and not just calling their whole limp range. So yeah, I think there's merit in either sizing. But uh, my preference, I... You know, assuming that the game flow uh, allows it would be to go bigger, personally. All I was going to say is that with kings, yeah, absolutely. The bigger the game will allow without sort of understanding that you probably have a stronger hand than you normally do, or at least a different type of hand than you normally do, the bigger I think we can go with kings. And one of the one thing about a straddle, especially in a, a pool the size of like Commerce 5-5, is that if the straddle is irregular, or if this is like the first straddle, let's say, that gives you an opportunity to 
enter a much more unknown portion of your strategy to your opponents. Like if your opponents have seen you open, you know, 10 pots in a row to like the same sizing or at least sizing factory and lips, and then you take some, or you do something totally different, it's going to trigger alarm bells in even the like least perceptive players. Where when the straddle comes in, it's a little bit fuzzier, like what you would typically do. And so I think it's a better time to potentially split your range preflop when you're not giving away information just because your opponents don't have precedent. So we don't, we don't really know what the situation was here, whether there had been many limps, or sorry, many straddles, or whether this was like the first straddle, um, of the game or the first time that Hero was raising over a straddle. Um, but definitely Kings is a hand that for the most part, I think we want to put more money in the pot preflop compared to what we're used to than less if we have a choice. Yeah, as much as possible. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> as much as we can get away with, right? Um, yeah, I, I will say that you know he said that the the player is an aggro wreck, borderline borderline whale type player, and mm. against that specific type of player, then I just go exploitative and raise it up, and, and I basically am banking on the fact that. There is information there if someone's paying attention and clever, but the fact that they're recreational, I I don't think that um, you know they're going to use it against us. If that makes sense. Yeah, I think a what position was Hero in again? Hero is in the small blind. Oh, okay, all right. The the quote unquote small blind, right? Yeah, I assume the. The first small blind. <laughs> yeah. The super small blind here. All right. Well, that changes that changes things a little bit. I, I also like sizing up a little bit more, too, just because um, our spots across the board post-flop are going to be lower EV than they would be if we were in position. I was thinking we were, like, under the gun one or two for some reason. Uh, in which case, I actually think considering a limp is also worthwhile. Especially if the game dynamic is such that, like, people are raising aggressively. And given that there's a, a whale who's limped, if people are like trying to isolate regularly, then it's a spot where we can often like induce a big raise and then a call and then have the opportunity to either call with an underrepresented hand or put in a limp raise, which I think uh, in low six poker is very often a good thing to do. If you, you don't want to stop the ability to deny like four players equity after it goes like limp, limp, 50, call, 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 being able to just shove for like what, if you have 500 and pick up 150 uncontested is it's not a it's not an outcome that we should discourage yeah and it's something that should be taken into consideration too you know the the two guys behind the big blind and the straddle who are they how often are they are they isolating isolating um you know is their average age 62 <laughs> this is going to have an effect on uh whether they're going to be isoing super wide you know um, so basically it'd be taking into consideration the blinds, I'm, but I'm thinking about it more with Kings and aces. I, now I'm thinking like, maybe I do want to go a little smaller just to like induce some more bad calls from the big blind almost. And like, let them like catch up a bit. Like it'll be like tough playing out of position against two players, but I'm just like, you could induce like a limp you, raise. Usually, too. like we don't want like big blind calling here, but maybe specifically when we have kings, like we don't mind it so much. Anyway, that's just something else to think about. 
Yeah, you can induce a limp race from the the aggressive um, recreational who lived under the gun as well by raising smaller. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it. I wish I was in this spot more often and could see like what happens when I just make it twenty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because uh, I, I don't really have a great sense of like what will happen, but I have a suspicion that good things could happen. <laughs> My suspicion is that the uh, the big blind would call, the straddle would call, and the under the gun limper would call. <laughs> and then we'd be, that's not we'd so be bad. Taking, taking a flop four ways. I mean, that, I think, that, that's I think depending on SPR, that's where stack size comes into play, because I think the deeper you are, like the more you kind of want to avoid that with a hand that isn't always going to give you the best information. But when you're going to the flop with, like, okay, so there's 80 in the pot, and you're going to the flop with, like, SPR four or five, then I think like we're just going to be able to get it in so profitably against uh, like worst one pair hands on a lot of boards or at least um, get in like a check raise that denies equity um, and picks up the pot at a really high frequency and can get called by worse. That's a more useful situation to put yourself in than, you know, when every player is 1500 deep and now you're like out of position against three players um, with SPR of like 30. Yeah. 30 would be high. So like 15. Anyway, we make it 40. We get any folds, two folds, one fold. Both, uh, both the big blind and the straddle fold and the limper calls. Okay. Uh, so there's 90 in the pot heading and the, uh, the flop is King Jack three. And I want to say like to treat it as effectively a thousand deep to start the hand. So King Jack three with a King Jack of clubs. Uh, my student bets out 70 and villain quickly calls. Mm-hmm. So we're up against a very aggressive player. Correct. I think it's very often a good idea to let aggressive players bet. It's, it's my, gen- my general approach is like, and this is sort of borne out in solvers, not that like I think solvers should always be or ever be like our guiding light. But what we'll what we'll very often see is that the higher your opponent's bet frequency, if your opponent's in position, the higher our check frequency should be. And it's a way to think about it is like if you bet, you're giving up position. And most likely, if your opponent has a very high bet frequency, that means they have a very high bluff frequency. And so when we have top of range or just really either side of the pole, we benefit when our opponent bluffs. So I think sort of you can think about this like, all right, is my opponent going to bet all jacks when checked to? Is my opponent going to bet any gut shot, like any club um, any of these hands win check two. And then how are they going to play versus a check raise? Because if we can get two streets in here at a really high frequency, that's useful. Now, this is a board where our opponent can't really turn very many, like, extremely high equity hands. So, like, if we had top set on, like, eight, six deuce, then I would say for sure check a lot because your opponent is going to have a range that includes a lot of overcards that might, they might stab and we can just call and then those will turn a very strong hand at some frequency that's willing to put in a lot of money. Whereas if we bet, many of those hands will just fold. 
Uh, but this is not necessarily that type of board. There's only one overcard to the board. So any, like, there's not a significant portion of hands that's going to turn something that's willing to put in, like, their entire stack that would just fold to a bit now. So this is all to say that, like, I think generally good practice is to check a lot here versus players who are going to bet too often. But this is an unusual situation because we have kings. So I'm wondering what you guys feel is the best course of action uh, with kings here. I'll let James go first. All right. Yeah, I I agree that we should be checking here against a volatile player who's um, going to have some bluffs on this board and just give him a bit of rope with like a super lock hand. Are we? I mean, we can consider check raise too. Yeah, I mean, there's the obvious like we'd block other top pair hands, so uh, it's a bit harder to get value with this particular hand against any opponent. Against someone who's, I don't know, a bit stickier, maybe, and but less likely to bluff, then I like the bet better, but. It's also a really big sizing too, just coming out here and uh, like bombing it for almost pot. So yeah, like if you if you are gonna bet, I think I'd like going for a smaller sizing. Um, but yeah, those are my initial thoughts. Mm-hmm. Well, Brad, what? Give us some thoughts, and then I'll uh, chime in with some more. I have a lot of thoughts. I always have a lot of thoughts. It's amazing <laughs> how many thoughts one can have over a single hand. Um, so, like you said, on 8-6 deuce, I very much like to start by checking. Um, and I think that's a board that I start checking a lot of over pairs as well. Uh, because villains tend to fire at that board with a, a high frequency. Um they look at a check as basically a missed C bet and a give up because in cash games I found that people's check range is very imbalanced and in most spots where villains check with initiative, they just give up for the most part. Not many people check raise um, or even have a check raise range. They basically are just playing their value straightforward. But King Jack 3 feels different because... Because we have a lot of hands that we can check and play pot control with. I mean, we have ace-jack, we have queens, um, all the middle pair type hands. Uh, basically, if I'm checking and giving villain a chance to bet, then I want there to be a lot of incentive to bet. Um, he's, I want him to think his bluff is going to go through a high percentage of the time, effectively, right? On this board, like, villain will bet his middle pairs, but villain also calls with his middle pairs too. We need him to be betting like, you know, seven, eight of hearts, right? Just a, or ace deuce or ace five of hearts, some sort of like backdoor nut flush draw or backdoor flush draw or zero equity type hands on King Jack three. I don't know, uh, the frequency and it would be good if I knew the villain in question, uh, to sort of have a good idea as to how he handles miss, uh, miss C bets. But typically, on this board, I do like a bet. That's my preference. And the sizing, I, I, I know why he went big. He went big because 
basically, I, I think he, he felt that Villain's calling range was fairly inflexible, right? He's either going to call or he's going to fold. And any jack he's going to call with, all of his draws, he's going to at least call. So he went for the bigger sizing to get max value. You know, the, the other argument, of course, is to go like uh, 30, uh, one-third to potentially get called lighter. Although, specifically here, I you know, villain's likely calling. Like, if he has a hand like ace-10, he's likely calling, I think, either way. Uh, the benefit to going smaller would be, in my opinion, to get some raises out of, again, some low equity, low equity type of hands. And I just don't know how frequently villains are going to be raising here um, with their low equity hands. So, you know, I, I see the merit to all the things. Um, I don't hate the way he played the flop, though, as far as his sizing. Yeah, I don't I don't hate it either. I think that the thing to be focused on here is will my opponent put too much money in the pot with certain types of hands and how can I get my opponent to do that? And so if it's, if it's bet calling too many jacks, then check raising can be really awesome. If it's betting like very low equity hands facing a a check, then checking either check calling or check raising is pretty awesome relative to betting. If it's bluff raising over 30, with like any kind of jack or draw or whatever, then betting 30 is really great. The reason I shy, I would shy away from 70 here is that I think that just looks like a hand that's not going to fold. And you're not, against most players, you're not going to induce like a ton of bluffs with 70. Uh, it could be wrong. And if you can induce bluffs with 70, then obviously I, I recommend doing so. The, but, ch- the check is dangerous because villain can check back, right? Like he can check back his jacks. We need to know that he's going to be betting his jacks, to, in my opinion, to for the for the check raise to to jump up a lot in merit. He, we need to know like he's betting a lot of his jacks, and two, he he's an aggressive player that limp called under the gun. So like you know, ace jack, we can pretty much eliminate that. Um, that he's likely going to be raising that pre, maybe like a queen jack off. And Jack ten off are top of range as far as Jack goes. Yeah, maybe. Although this was an undergun limp. Yes, I think those. I think that can really include a lot of hands. It actually just says he limps. He <laughs> doesn't even say oh, the position. Oh, but okay. uh, yeah. I, I just I'll treat it as an under the gun limp or an early position limp. Yeah, we should. Yeah, so this might not map obviously perfectly to the actual hand that was played. Um, but we'll just make assumptions and then speak to that. Well, the concepts so, concepts matter more than anything. Right. So we'll speak about it as if it were an under the gun raise. And like we already said, we're going to speak about it as if it were a thousand stack death to begin right. the hand. In that situation, I think you could see a much stronger set of hands being lent. Yeah, some, I think some players, we want to know if this is the type of player who's very aggressive post-flop or just aggressive across the board. So I do think there's a lot of players who like to they like to see flops and they like to wait to be aggressive at that point, especially in the live environment. Players who can, they feel like they can leverage the fact that they have a wide range and can be perceived to have value on most boards where sometimes their opponents can't. Yeah. In this situation, I think, I think against the types of mistakes 
most opponents don't actually bluff that much with like really low equity bluffs. And so against the majority of the field, I do think like just trying to get the max from like Jack X through a betting line does make sense. Uh, and so against your typical opponent, I do like this line. I do think though, again, the more aggressive, the more of a propensity to bluff, the more I think we want to try and give rope. And I just don't think a bet of 70 is how you give rope. And I think what we're alluding to here, or like what the audience I, I <laughs> is maybe kind of seeing with some clarity, is that you know data points matter in a big way. Like mm-hmm. you need as many data points as possible because you know we're we're theorizing without having data points. But like if we know, for instance, that Villanova stabs, then checking begins to gain a lot more merit. So really, you know, data just in the audience right now, like think, like try to get these data points that allow you to make more informed decisions moving forward. Yeah, so yeah, that gets a lot to like what our approach is here. I think what I often try and do is just give the things I'm looking for more so than like an actual prescription of what to do, Um, especially when it's not a hand that I actually played. And so, yeah, you're gathering data to try and execute on like the types of frameworks that we're outlining here. Now, obviously, like I encourage everyone to develop your own frameworks and your own things that you are looking for and that you feel like are possible to collect data about. There are some things that in the live realm, like you actually can't collect data and you have to try and do other types of things to make informed decisions or extrapolate based on data that you can collect. But yeah, definitely flop stabs are the type of thing that you can most likely collect data about. Uh, that's, that's among the things that is relatively easy to like observe in a sample. Plus flop stabs based on the way our opponents play gets shown down quite a bit because a lot of our opponents aren't inducing stabs to raise. They're inducing stabs to call. And so just pay attention to like, what flop stab ranges end up looking like at showdown because you're going to see those types of hands show down quite a bit. Whereas I actually think if you can induce a lot of stabs, those hands should not show down very often because among the hands that should check race most often are the hands that need protection. Um, so we should be checking to induce stabs uh, to then get folds from our opponents who are going to bet fold far too much. And so that gets back to like the eight, six, deuce board where when we have like six, seven, I think we're highly incentivized to bet against opponents who rarely stab and check raise against opponents who often stab. Uh, or that's just my feeling. Unless they stab turn also, but that's a lot. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, you can kind of play out the rest of the hand, right? Like if villain stabs too often, then we get a lot of checks. And then if we go for value, like we if we ch- play a check call line with like top pair or an over pair, then we're going to bet the river for value and then villains just fold. Right, so the hand doesn't really get the showdown, or we check the river to induce a bluff and we call, and villain just mucks. So, you know, it, it's a, uh, it's hard to get the showdown when villain doesn't have a good hand. <laughs> mm-hmm. James, any other thoughts on the uh, flop sizing? Yeah, I mean, I was just thinking, like, if we can be fairly confident that he's calling with all the jack X, then um, I like the seventy sizing, but I think like maybe a more sophisticated player could find some folds with some jacks just because like a lot of the two pair outs won't be clean. Like they have ace jack and then ace comes like you might be getting sacked by 
ace king or something. I'm not saying I advocate folding ace jack, but like even like queen jack, like could easily have been raised by like king queen and like might find a fold. Yeah, I think like, like the larger sizing. We're kind of I working think, like, under jack this. ten is a tough hand to continue with, especially out of position. Facing 70, I think in position, life just gets easier with most of your jack X. Since your opponent can't check back and pot control uh, as easily. I mean, they can't. Yeah, so. yeah for sure. And, and I would say, like, they limp called from under the gun, right? So we can draw a lot of conclusions that typically players that limp call from under the gun, when they flop middle pair, they don't let it go. <laughs> they're, not no, willing, yeah. they're not willing to just uh, drop it. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we can squeeze jacks for quite a bit on this street. But we it's better to get two streets at a high frequency with king's full than to get one big street and then a second street at a low frequency. So I would I would try not to set off alarm bells. Like I think we could probably get 90 from a lot of jacks on this street. That's true. Or like if you're going to go, you go pot. Yeah. But then it's like you're 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 getting outside the range of what is considered to be not worth thinking about too much, such that you you can end up triggering a lot of jack x to fold on the turn. Whereas if you can get jack x to call very very frequently, like a bet of seventy on the flop and then a bet of one hundred and twenty five on the turn, that's better than getting a hundred on the flop and then seeing very few of those hands continue to a turn bet. Also, like you almost you'll almost never get raised. If you make it a hundred on the flop, correct? Then by the hands that you actually aren't doing as well against compared to almost anything else. Like I think the only hands that really will raise you are like queen to the clubs, ace yeah, to the clubs, those nine to the clubs, yeah. Pocket threes, if, but it doesn't matter. Yeah, what but you're, do you're, then. <laughs> you're you're made in the shade against pocket threes. You yeah, can, exactly. You can do nothing we can, wrong. We can do whatever we want there. Yeah. Um, okay, so we'll go to the turn. Villain calls. It'd be funny if just villain folded flop, right? Just that's the end of the hand. <laughs> yeah, uh, the worst hand history discussion ever for a coaching session. Um, now there's two thirty in the pot. The turn is the brilliant nine of clubs, completing mm-hmm. the straight and the flush, and we check villain bets one hundred into two thirty after uh, four or five seconds. And we call. Yeah. So. Oh, oh, there, there is data. There is some, some data, uh, data that uh, I would like to give to. There is another hand um, in the hands that he sent me, where villain had ace king on a king high board, and basically just went like eighty percent, eighty percent, was blasting it with his with his top pair value type hand, and that's it. Hmm. I think this is a really, this is the kind of bet size that against a very strong player, it doesn't necessarily mean that much, but against a weaker player, I think it's going to tend to mean something relatively significant. This looks like it wants to get called. It also doesn't look like it thinks it can get called by, well, let me, let me put it like this. I think this looks a lot like you know, turn to pair or like a straight or something like that. Something that is concerned about funneling us towards whether, whether they think about it like this or not, but they're concerned about funneling us towards hands that 
are stronger than a straight or understands the fact that like we can be pushed to bluff in the circumstance and looks less to me like something that is very, very strong and is very concerned about, or is something very, very concerned about protection. I think we still, I'm still not necessarily tempted to raise. Like, I think there are some instances where our opponent can turn their hand, like, on in a spot where we theoretically should not be able to put our hand into the top of the pole and raise for value. Uh, we can based on sizing. I just don't, I don't think this is one of those spots though. What I will say is that I think that we should consider, we should start considering right now whether or not we're going to lead if the board pairs. I don't think we lead when the board pairs. I don't think straights will fold, but I don't think we necessarily get called. We can get a check raise through versus a straight, not through, but get called check raising versus a straight on this board. And I think the straight might choose a smaller sizing than we would have chosen. So it's something that we, it's something that we should start considering right now. I still think that sort of hedging against us being wrong that this could be a bluff, that this could be a very strong hand. I would tend towards just checking on a board pairing river card anyways and going for that check raise. We also don't want to underestimate our ability for our opponents to just call, uh, with hands that were very, are very rarely going to be good and have poor blockers like, you know, like Queen Tender Diamonds here would be facing a river check raise. Anyways, yeah, I think our, our decision to check call here is fairly standard, but I am discounting like top of range and I'm discounting bluffs. I think the card matters too. You know, if it's a three, if it like, yeah, I guess it doesn't really. There's only one king, so <laughs> if we make quads, um, I we're not, pro- if we make quads, we should, would likely be leading the river. Um, you know, if it's at the three or the nine pairs, then I think checking makes more sense uh, because villains are still going to be betting their queen ten type hands. Yeah, I think the nine especially is a card where there's going to be a good amount of underboats there, and they'll almost always call a check shove and can occasionally find like you want to be aware of the showdown game where your opponent is optimizing to show down and not optimizing for EV. So whether or not, like, let's say we lead for pot on, like, a river nine, whether or not versus that lead going all in with king nine is advisable or not, I think it's it's the type of thing that our opponents aren't going to do and that we can predict that they won't do. Because at that point, they understand that they can just call, get to a showdown, and they have the fact that we we could have jacks or kings at top of mind. So on the other hand, when someone like runner runners a full house, they're not ever going to just fold in my opinion. And so we just want to make sure that we can get all the money in. So I agree on like a, I think especially a river nine is like the clear situation we want to check. A three is interesting because uh, we counterfeit some two pair. Um, and so I think leading can make more sense, but it's a close one in my mind. James? I, I definitely agree on just calling on the turn here. I would be curious. I, I think, like, bring it back to the data points thing, like, trying to be aware of, like, are they limping all their suited aces? Like, 
in this spot. And, you know, I mean, we can discount them, as Jack said, like from the sizing for sure. But I think there still could be like a lot of combos overall. So it still might make up a somewhat significant portion of the range. And then I would also be aware like, okay, like do they have the offsuit combos of like queen 10 and king jack in this formation like just having a you know paying close attention to the the other hands that show down like can make a big difference in terms of like how how we should be playing the hand um later on so yeah that's just something i'd be thinking about in the spot yeah it's a good point too about the suited aces and i would say that because of the aggro label of the villain specifically he you know Maybe he has, you know, ace deuce, ace four, ace five, ace six, ace seven, ace eight, ace nine of clubs. I would think he's more apt to raise with a hand like ace ten of clubs. Uh, but for sure, he's raising ace ten of clubs on the flop. Yeah, I would and say. yeah, a lot yeah, of those, a lot definitely... of his nut, nut flush draws will go ahead and raise the flop too. Yeah, good point. Yeah, I agree. Although I think this is part of where Pre- the flop sizing, flop sizing can can give us more clarity where when we make it larger, I do think we become somewhat less likely to induce uh, our raise from those types of hands. But yeah, I think between the flop, just our smooth call and the turn sizing, I'm ready to heavily discount what admittedly was a large number of combos of nut flushes that could potentially get here. And uh, really discounting the smaller flushes too to be honest with you, like most of the time on this board, they're just going to, they're going to size up for value, uh, especially yeah, in this formation. And, and protection. Yeah. Although they can't get it, but they might think that they can. Humans are driven by greed. It's <laughs> the nature of humans. So we face a hundred, we smooth call the damn straight. I think if the, uh, if it's like the eight of, uh, that's just weird too. Never mind. So we call. Is uh, we call. Now, there's 4.30 in the bot heading into the river. The river is the Ten of Hearts. Uh, so, King Jack, Ten, Nine, Three, with three clubs. We check. Villain thinks for five to six seconds and bets 200. There's a little note here at the end. Villain capable of bluffing and having spaz outs, but hard to think of logical bluffs at this point. And don't think he turns two pair into a bluff here. I agree. Well, let me. I'll let, I think I've gone first. The other two streets uh, or three streets. So, James, Brad, what are you guys thinking here? So, what what kind of price are we getting? It's two hundred into how much at this point? Four thirty. Mm-hmm. Four thirty. You're getting a a pretty good price here. Um, I could see this being two pair a lot, like just with these the small sizing on the turn and river so like i you know i'd start to count combos um what, what do you think two pair is bluffing or value betting here uh i you know i i think there's a tendency to put players on ace king a lot when they three bet pre-flop so i think yeah i think two pair might be well we did in the three bet pre-flop what? Or, oh yeah, raising 
Yeah, it, I guess. I guess. Putting it's okay. We described the hand like an yeah, hour yeah. ago. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Yeah, it is super thin with two pair here for sure, um, and not necessarily good, but I think. I think they're, uh, yeah, I think villains betting two pair sometimes here. Maybe not all the time. Yeah, I guess I personally would be kind of surprised to see much two pair betting here. I also think a lot of, a lot of the river two pair I also could see pretty easily checking the turn, not deciding to bet the turn for the sizing. Yeah, like, like Jack uh, 10. Jack 10, 9 10. 9 10. There's not yeah. so much King 10. Of all the two pair, I would that ends up betting here, I think like King 10 maybe is the most likely just because I think people have a tendency to like when their hand improves, have like more rationale for betting. So like Jack nine here, for example, or King nine, their hand obviously got worse uh, on a relative basis. So I think that's a lot more likely to check compared to even like nine ten or King 10 where their hand improved Maybe not on a relative basis, but like, uh, it, it could be perceived to have improved. So I, I would think those hands would be more likely to bet, but I, I think that there are very few bluffs here and that this is a size both on the turn of the river that I'm discounting those bluffs. And so I, I do think, James, that you've, you're right in that two pairs and whether those bet for one reason or another is going to be in a large part like the crux of this decision. Yeah. But yeah, I think it's it, hard that on, to be bluffing here. Like and yeah, and not just due to sizing, but just the run out. So James, would you rather have threes or kings to call here? Um threes, because you I mean, there's just more like two pair hands that the villain can bet for value, I think. Although yeah, and the villain would be raising threes on the flop a lot and probably going bigger on the turn, I would imagine. Potentially. But, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I think I think we can find a fold here. So do either of you see merit to raising? No, I don't. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to make... Uh, an aggressive recreational player full of straight. Um, maybe if I was like, you know, 22, <laughs> then I might think I could get away with that. But uh, I've tried to make too many recreational players uh, fold in spots like this. And like, I, in my opinion, I'm not trying to make them fold the straight. Yeah, I think uh, overall it's very good advice. And it's the kind of thing that we should know or James and I often talk about, like, is someone a caller or a folder? As sort of, like, a very baseline question that you want to be asking yourself about all of your opponents. And obviously, like, it can be situational. But having a general sense of that kind of thing is a really good sort of first layer piece of evidence or sort of assumption, hypothesis that you want to be working from throughout the hand. And so if you felt like you were up against, like, a folder, then you might want to try it. But I think most players who are described the way villains is described are callers. And therefore, if someone's a caller, you're more likely to get too much value 
um, compared to being able to overbluff. And so, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it. On the other hand, I think if we had, like, let's say we had seven, eight of clubs, not necessarily hand that I'm going to be check raising the turn, although I might versus this size, but not necessarily hand I'm going to be check raising the turn, but facing this river size, I do think that I would, uh, go ahead and pull a trigger and shut for value. 1,000%. Um, not going to let villain get away with betting 100 than 200. And if he's going to call with his queens, um, it, you know, it, this hand was it, very interesting to me. So my, my suit unfolded, right? And, you know, you said there's not many bluffs villain can have here. But uh, on the same token, like, what value do they have? And we're getting over three to one on the river. Yeah, I'll pose that question to you guys. I think queens. Mostly. I mean So Queen Jack, I, Queen Jack. Queen ten. Queen ten, Queen Jack. Even with king the small queen. the small sizing on the turn. Yeah, I'd discount King Queen because we got the we have the King. But King Queen could is possible. Yeah, I think they're all possible and to me the sizing on the turn is somewhat consistent with the mindset of like betting a hundred. You know, an under like a recognition that because clubs are there, we don't maybe don't want to bet that big. Um and not probably not a bluff, because that's just not a sizing that gets is perceived to get that many folds. So my feeling is that it's Queen Ten is probably the most likely hand in both situations. I agree that there's not many other queens other than Queen Ten. I don't think Queen Jack plays this way that often. They check um, back. Check back a lot on the turn. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, so, like, if it were me uh, <laughs> in the hand and not my student, um, we would know. <laughs> we would have more information because mm. I, I'm not folding the river. Um, yeah. I'm just, like, getting three to one, needing to, to be right, you know, a little less than 25% of the time. The fact that it's hard to find villain's value range, even though there's not logical bluffs, right? And I see, I see that it's hard to come up with many logical bluffs for villain, but that doesn't mean that villain is not bluffing. You know, villain can be floating the flop with like ace 10 off, right? River, river bottom pair, uh, makes sort of a weak bluff on the turn and then go ahead and turn his hand into a bluff. Maybe villain can have ace jack if he opted to limp. And then with this run out, he's like, oh, well, now I'm just going to go ahead and rep the queen. Um, just sort of some sort of spazzy, spazzy type river bet from a hand that we don't really expect. We and, could see pocket threes here sometimes. Like, you know, maybe they were kind of slow playing and then like they still wanted to bet for value on the turn and then like the board just got a little dicier but so they went small on the river that's that's possible yeah i think so you're there's some conflicting things about this board which i think brad brings up thing a is that there are not that many very obvious bluffs thing b is that it's fairly apparent that we have a lot of folds and here's where i think at the lower stakes, we want to focus less on blockers and more on absolute hand strength. Because I think what you see more so from our opponents is that at some, some of them recognize 
that they can get folds here. And what they deem to be like worth turning into a bluff to try and get folds is a little bit unclear. But it happens enough across like sort of our array of opponents that I do think calling with sets and like folding a lot of our two pairs makes sense here. Like I think calling with like ace of clubs king would be a pretty big mistake. Yeah, it's not good. Whereas calling with like a set of kings, I think is likely to make money. And you might think that like having the ace of clubs is more important because you're blocking your opponent's value. But I think not only does the ace block your opponent's bluffs as well, but I also just think that it's too easy for our opponent just to decide to like try and get king jack to fold with jack 10 or with 9-10 or with jack 9 or king 9. Like opponents are weird and the types of hands that they think that they should try and get you to fold is not always intuitive to us. Their sort of lack of precision and understanding about like where should we draw the line between like bluff catcher, bluff and value? You know, if we want to think about things in those groupings is, you know, I think that oftentimes we are trying to sort of push beyond those boundaries to a certain degree, but we're playing against people who have not ever formed those boundaries in the first place. And so the types of things you'll end up seeing are kind of mystifying. And so I, my general rule that I give to people who are looking to bluff catch well at the low stakes is blockers matter, but focus more on absolute hand strength. I think it's close with Kings, but I agree that calling is probably best. Although I think it's the mark of a player who has been well conditioned by the field and who like is responding to the incentives being presented to him across all situations that folding here is like good discipline and it's probably a sign of a winner. But I, I agree with you that we should just plug our nose and put it in. And this may may matter, but like I said uh, in the start of the show, you know, I'm a I'm an online player, so when I call the river in spots like this, I see what villains are betting with, and there are so many times where I call the river and I'm like, I, I can't figure out what they're bluffing with, and yet I can't figure out what their value is, and I call and they just show something like, you know, red sixes, and it's like, what? Like, what What did they do? You know, and like, it, you know, like, it's like you said, they, it just doesn't make sense, it's mystifying, um, and I, I see that so often, that in a spot where I'm getting three to one, like, I just chunk the money in and hope for the best, <laughs> and, and, and expect to see some just random weird hands that we're not really putting in villain's range. Yeah, I think part of the reason that that lesson might come across better online is that you, you get to see versus just hear, like, I missed. Right. Like, I yeah, I missed might be red sixes here. Right. You got it. Which is, you say you yeah. got it, you know? Oh, yeah, you got it. Yeah, oh, you're good. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think reverting to, like, like, minimum defense frequency against someone who's volatile when we're not really sure what to do can be a a good choice. Like we're not yeah, if we fold kings here we're folding way too much and Yeah, I agree with that. I think though that sometimes like when you put yourself in minimum defense frequency world, 
you start thinking more about like what is my range what's my opponent's range like what are the hands that make sense as calls what are the hands that don't make sense as calls and that can shift you more into like I'm up against what should be like at least somewhat of a polarized range and blockers matter and therefore I call with like you know ace jack with the ace clubs or something like that where when you're in the more mystic world of like my opponent could be doing shit with shit and I have really no idea then it might lead you to a better form of minimum defense strategy Brad would you call here with like ace of clubs jack I don't think so I, I mean, yeah, I don't think so. I mean, when when we eliminate, you know, when we don't have kings, then villain can start having some more two pair. Um, kings specifically, I like because it, it's the turn sizing, right? That that's the data point that I keep coming back to, and that initially we were reviewing this hand, like a hundred and two thirty, from a rec player, it just doesn't look like value. It doesn't feel like value. Uh, it just looks weird, like because value typically goes one sixty to one eighty. They go larger sizing. I would probably start calling it two pair, maybe king jack. Uh, yeah, king jack. Call yeah. I, so amongst the sort of like perplexing things that you might see is like if you have ace jack, you can end up getting bluffed by like king five you know like king five of diamonds or something that just decided to try and get you to fold like two pair um and it's just different because i never i'm never betting 70 on the flop with ace jack right i'm not even most of the time i'm probably checking ace jack so i don't really get to that part of the decision tree with ace jack in this spot specifically i mean Mm mm-hmm yeah, so maybe Ace-10 with the Ace of Clubs is a better example. Ace-10 with the Ace of Clubs, I'm just raising the turn. Yeah. Like, I'm just saying, you know what, yeah. you're betting small, like, we're just, we're gonna, I'm gonna, we're, I'm gonna put you to the test, uh, you don't have much value, let's dance. Yeah, so I guess, I think we're seeing this spot a little bit differently, and I'm considering whether I should reevaluate the way I'm seeing it, and sort of describe the difference. I think I see... The small bet on the turn as unlikely to be like a really, or I'm discounting bluffs, even though a lot of bluffs exist. You are not discounting bluffs. Yeah, I'm discounting value. <laughs> I'm going the I'm other also way. discounting top end value. Yeah. But I'm not as much discounting like two pair. I just think like with Jack Nine or, you know, even Queen Ten, like there's three clubs on the board they still size up for value like because they know that their hand is vulnerable and when they feel vulnerable they're going to size up typically mm-hmm. um, they're not you know basically the hundred dollar bet is like okay they've got the nut flush like that would be a hand that maybe they size small um, and then they got a lot of other just random things well why not raise the turn with the kings mm-hmm I mean, you could raise a turn, I guess, to deny equity and possibly get some value, but... you just rather induce? I like inducing. I mean, our, our kings are... It's, it's a weird, weird spot. 
I like calling because we get to realize our equity too. I don't want to check raise to like 360 and get bet three bet shoved when villain does have the ace of clubs. So basically, you know, we're into kind of equity denial mode with the check raise and banking on the fact that villain's got like queen jack with a queen of clubs type hands and he's betting them or jack 10 with the 10 of clubs, uh, ace 10 with the ace of clubs or ace 10 with the 10 of clubs maybe that float the flop. Yeah, I think it comes down to just like a lot of these hands bet and we're on the turn. Few of them have much equity worth denying. Like most hands are going to have at most like eight outs. Um, sorry, nine outs. It's like 11, right? If they have an ace 10, then they'll have, uh, they'll have the- if they have the queen of clubs in their hands, then they're going to have like, 11 outs? Yeah. Because three of clubs is no good. Yeah. So, not so bad. Around 20-something 20, 20 percent. Low 20% yeah. equity. It's worth denying if we can make a really educated read that these hands are not going to bluff. Um, and then our incentive just to get those to fold rather than let them realize increases. Um, but I think the demonstration that you're like if, we're, if we are putting those hands into a bluff range on the turn, it's not super consistent to just assume that they're not going to bluff the river also. And so I think if, if our read is that we're up against a bluff heavy range of hands that have not great equity, typically we're going to want to just call them and let those hands bluff again on the river. And I would think it's likely they do bluff the river when they bet the turn. Mm-hmm. On this, you know, they just... It's like we didn't raise the turn, we didn't bet the turn ourselves. So in their mind, we're not super strong. So they need to go ahead and, and bet the river too. Well, I think the lesson in all this is uh, don't fold to aggressive players with <laughs> very strong hands at low stakes when you're getting a good price. Especially when you're getting a good price. Um, but yeah, I think just I don't know exactly what the thought process was with your student, but I think just focusing on the same set of reads throughout the hand can help. So do you remember exactly like the wording he used to describe this player preflop? Not exactly the wording, but effectively kind of a lunatic. Lunatic. Okay. Well, that lunatic isn't even that's a strong word yeah it's a strong word so <laughs> but it's a it's an extremely useful word and it yeah so don't fold the lunatics with top set that's easy it's an easy one to take to the bank yeah and i think like against a lunatic i also would not bet 70 on the flop because in the world where we can in, induce enough bluffs uh to very happily call with kings on the river here, we should probably start inducing buffs earlier in the hand. Uh, and starting out with a bet of 70 is... It's not necessarily the best way to do that. We can't necessarily induce bluffs on like cards that aren't as scary for like our obvious flop top of range. And so we may have been fortunate to actually get a run out where we can induce a lot of bluffs after betting large on the flop. Although I wouldn't necessarily say this is a fortunate run out for our hand. And... Uh... Just to add a little bit of context, and you know, we don't have to analyze the hand, but this was the other hand 
that my students sent me. Uh, and basically it was 5510 versus same aggressive rec, uh, capable of bluffing, not scared money, 900 effective, two whales limp. He ISO'd 270 for middle position. My student called king queen off. The flop was king 6-4, two spades. Checks to him. He bets 200 into 280. My student calls, the turns a deuce, we check, and then villain jams. And, um, you know, at this point, there's 680 in the pot, and villain has, looks to be like 630, so close to pot. So he just, like, pound, shove. Um, my student called, and the villain had ace-king. If that gives a little bit of context as far as his sizings go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That definitely, so that this hand came before the other hand, or do we know? Uh, <laughs> I think that, yeah, that hand came before. It came before um, Yeah. the other hand. That's an important data point to, to, to keep it at the top of your mind here, facing a very different kind of sizing on the turn. Right. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it, it's always important to keep track of that, right? Especially... Guys that are willing to put money in the pot, they're going to be putting money in the pot fairly often. Human beings are very predictable in their sizings and pay attention to what their value sizing is and then use that in the future when making decisions against that specific villain. It's, uh, just can mean the difference between, um, you know, calling the river and pulling the river <laughs> with our kings. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This seems like a, a perfect hand for something I haven't kept up with completely, but sometimes we do a podcast breakdown where we just take a deeper look at the, the math and the combos. So in order to force myself to do it, I'll say, uh, yep, I'm going to come out with a breakdown just looking at the assumptions in this hand and um, try and try and see if we can reach a more concrete conclusion or just look at what assumptions have to be true for for a call to be better. Yeah, I think what we'll what we'll see from that is that even a low spaz frequency adds up quickly. So as soon as a ridiculous number of hands start showing up like two, five, ten percent of the time, when we can discount that to the degree we can on the turn, we end up with an extremely bluff heavy range for our opponent rather quickly, even if, and we can probably weight this guy a lot more towards like having a higher spaz frequency just by virtue of having been described as a lunatic, but even opponents who like are more unknowns, that spaz frequency is, it's important not to discount. Um, and yeah, I think I really liked that point about the fact that people have to show their cards online, that that's a better environment to learn about the spaz frequency. And I do think the spaz happens a little bit more online because of the sort of the lack of social reinforcement. Like the the understanding that if you have to show this down, like no one's gonna know who you are, versus like And also like the stakes are almost always lower. And yeah, you're you're behind your computer. Like it's easy to click that that button for that river bluff at the end. Well I- I will say this, that typically the stakes that I'm playing online right now are equivalent to like 1530. Um, 
1530 no limit so right. well it, it is fairly big for, and yeah. um I mean, I mean for for a lot of yeah yeah for um, for for a lot of a lot of folks yeah um but like what Jack was saying it you know is completely true where it's like okay if villain has sixes in their range right and then how often are they bluffing with sixes and then how often are they bluffing with fives and fours and sevens and eights and then all of a sudden you start looking at it and you're like wow like they're severely over bluffing here and it's a hard thing to know it's a hard thing to quantify. Because, I mean, we don't even have the data here because uh, student folded on the river and there's no way to get enough data, you know, successfully playing live to make this decision on the fly. So it's just really tough to know. And I think it boils down to, like, if Villain is betting some weird hands, then he's going to be severely over bluffing. And if he's not, well, Villain's probably just going to win. win our, our money. Yeah, so it's good to overfold in live poker, but not against the maniac. And it's important to just keep context in mind. Like there are a lot of times against our opponents who funnel very drastically in certain spots. That's where we can really start discounting bluffs against opponents who don't funnel and then maintain like a spaz frequency. We really can't rule it out. You know, so again, the opponent that we know always folds, or we, that we can be confident always folds like nines through fours and deuces on the flop, has a lot fewer spaz possibilities um, versus the opponent who like probably never folds those types of hands. You're just floating everything pretty much. Yeah, it just floats you all the time. Yeah. And yeah, you're, you're going to pay that player off more too. So you have to be comfortable with that. Yeah, he deserves it. <laughs> he floats all the time and he bluffs all the time, so you you make yeah, a hand better than top set. You you deserve my money, right? And sometimes you're gonna you're gonna do like I mean this happens to me where I can't help but sometimes like doing a bit of a side call and then getting shown just like worse value. <laughs> yeah, that's true too. Where you feel you you felt like you were in resigned bluff catcher mode and your opponent just likes to bet and thought maybe he would win. And that did it. All right. Well, that's poker. <laughs> if Phil, now you know. And, and as a disclaimer, too, if Phil bets like 180 here and then bets 70 to 80% on the river, then I'm just folding. Um, I'm folding the kings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But anyway. All right. I'm done. All right. You heard it here. Brad Wilson folds kings on the river with top set. To big bets on bad runouts. <laughs> Good luck using that against me, guys. If you want to track me down, you deserve it. Like you deserve it more than this guy deserves my money. If you track me down and use it against me. So, Pat, we don't normally do much of an interview on the show, but I would. You know, you mentioned that you're playing uh, larger stakes online. You are based in the United States. I wonder if you can share anything about what poker looks like for you these days as like an online professional in the United States? You know, there are multiple options. For me, for me personally, I play on a little a mobile app called PKC, and it's uh, it's three blinds and ante. The game's not, not effect, it, you know, it's effectively 1530 no limit, but it's kind of strange, um, three blind plus ante stakes. But, uh, you know, it, it's a very good option to play cards on, and the other option, for like a uh, platform for online would be ignition for cash games um 
I've always told my students to avoid ACR like the plague. I think that uh, guys, the, the one like allure of ACR for my students specifically, they're playing cash game, is like the rake back aspect. And I just always tell them like, look, rake back's okay, but like we're playing cards to play in good games, right? And ACR's games have just never been good compared to Ignition. But the app that I play on, PKC, you know, it's it's my highest hourly online that I believe I can find anywhere. So that's that's where I'm sticking. Nice. And uh, how many hours a year live do you think you're playing these days? How of live poker, like in real life, yeah. like in a given year? Year, maybe like six. <laughs> <laughs> I, I uh, yeah. so you know I used to be back after Black Friday was very non-trusting of online to say the least and uh, kind of packed my bags up. I started playing live uh, at the beginning of my career in 2004 on cruises to nowhere. So I went back to that after Black Friday. I lived in commerce, um, played 60 hours a week for a little over a year. The 10, 20, 20, 40 no, no limit games. And, uh, then I, I, I met the woman that would become my wife and, um, living out of a suitcase in a hotel room is not conducive to a healthy relationship with somebody living across the country and, uh, online poker was an option. So I just kind of bit the bullet and jumped back into, into the online fray. But since then, since, you know, I'm now married and, uh, the games are good online, so if I can sit in my living room and play cards in my underwear, which I don't do, by the way, but, you know, it's the thing that people say, right? I just make money in my underwear. Um, it's good to have the freedom, too. <laughs> right. I mean, why not just go the whole way, right? Why not just be fully nude? But, um, yeah, it, I've never, I haven't had the desire to, to go live in a casino and play live, especially when... A, my hourly rate is somewhat comparable, and I get to spend more time with uh, with my wife and with my family. Would you uh, consider moving to a state that um, had online poker or legal online poker? If uh, or what states would be able to attract you? So, California is very very attractive. I love California. It's the weather is what I love. Um, mm. but I, I have, I have two, two young children, they're eight and 10. Um, and we get them like half the time. So can't really move. Um, <laughs> can't really just abandon the kids and move across country. Right. We live in Tennessee, Georgia. So it's like, okay, do I want to move to, uh, Tunica, Mississippi? I mean, <laughs> that's not, that, that's not very yeah. appealing. Um, the games in Florida are pretty good. Uh, for, for my money though, like I love LA, I love the Bay area, like matrix and Bay one Oh one. Those games are pretty good. That that's where if I didn't have, if, you know, if we didn't have the kids, that's where I'd be. Yeah. Well, when they're, when they're 17, you'll move to California and then they'll get UC tuition. <laughs> uh, and until then you can enjoy the hot, wonderful, or I'm sure they're wonderful Georgia summers. Dude, I'm sweating my balls off right now. Like, it is almost October, and it is so hot. Like, this last week, it has like, been like 97 to 99. It's absurd. 
fun. Very fun. And by the way, when I lived in LA, it was like a year, 70 degrees. I never saw it rain ever. <laughs> like just perfect all the time. Yeah, I grew up in um, Southern California and I went to school in Santa Barbara. So I can nice. definitely recommend the weather there. Um, yeah, I don't know, unless it does rain. I don't know rain. why I'm in Seattle Maybe. now. But. Yeah, that's not a good decision. Do you have Do you have kids? What, what's what, <laughs> what led you to Seattle? Um, James has got like a dozen kids, you know, with you know maybe a dozen women. Yeah. Oh, so like Sean Kemp, right? Yeah, but they're He's all in from, Seattle. He, he played so, in Seattle. Uh, <laughs> it worked out well. <laughs> well done, sir. Well done. All right, Brad. Uh, really appreciate you coming on and joining us, and you know, sharing a little bit about how you're thinking about poker these days. Looking forward to checking out Chasing Poker Greatness, the upcoming podcast, and I'll be sure to, uh, well, it's out now. I always forget. <laughs> we're, we're recording in the future. Yeah. I don't know. You guys are listening yeah. to this in the past. You don't realize it, but you are. Exactly. Uh, all right, so go check it out now. What are you waiting for? Go listen to it. Download the first four episodes, which I'm sure are all out at this point. Appreciate it, brother. All right. Peace, everybody. Yeah. Thanks, Brad. My pleasure.